Welcome to the Faith Dialogue Podcast with your host, Pastor Ken Baer. Are you ready to swim in the deep end of the Bible pool or climb to the top of Faith Mountain? If so, open the eyes that see, those ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive. Get your cup of coffee and your Bible as we begin. So welcome. Welcome to our 11 o'clock service at the Windsor Celebration. Um, like I said, thank you so much for uh, Pastor Hal and Thelma for stepping in last week while, while we, uh, we were in, in Tennessee. Um, we are in the Gospel of Matthew and have been for the last few weeks, almost a couple months now. And uh, for those of you that are relatively new to us, uh, that's how we do things. Uh, we try to go through an entire uh, book of the Old Testament or New Testament at a time, trying to hit every chapter and every verse so that we don't miss things because nothing in the Bible is unimportant. It's all profitable for, for our teaching. The last few weeks we've been in chapters 1 and 2 of the Gospel of Matthew. And, and it's interesting because Matthew starts off like Luke with a, with a genealogy. And he talks about this Messiah and how he came from Abraham. He was the son of Abraham. He was of the tribe of Judah, but he was also a son of David. And that was the prescription necessary to be the Messiah. He had to have those qualifications, that, that lineage. And then we find out a little bit about Joseph. We don't know much about Joseph because Joseph is only mentioned a few times in the, in the New Testament. But the angel came to Joseph, and Joseph had found out that Mary was with child. And that was scandalous, and, and they had not been together. But rather than divorce her, the, the angel said, um, do not, son of, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife. And we know the story. So they traveled to Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And then, of course, Herod was after them, after the Magi came. Uh, so they traveled to Egypt. And then after Herod had died, the angel appeared again to Joseph and said, you can take the child back. Now, interesting, he didn't specify uh, to, not, to go to Nazareth. He just said, you can go back to Israel. And he warned him about Judah because the son of Herod was on the throne. So it was still dangerous for Jesus and, uh, and the family. Um, but so they settled in, in Nazareth. And Jesus spent... Uh, his early years in Nazareth. He was there until he was about 30 years of age. In fact, all of the early, all of the most of the apostles and all of the early miracles came from that area of Galilee where Jesus was was a resident. You know, often these genealogies we don't we don't get into where genealogies tell us who, but it doesn't say where where are you from. Now it's interesting that idea of where are you from. Because, for example, I could ask you where you're from. If you ask me where I'm from, I would say, well, we're from Michigan. I was actually born in Chicago. And quite frankly, we leave, we've lived in about oh, six or seven different states and a couple of different countries, you know, different double continents. Uh, we've lived all over the place. So it would be difficult to tell you exactly where we're from. We usually just say we're from, we're from Michigan. Now, when Carol and I were in, in Mexico, it was a completely different story. And maybe you have this in the Philippines too, because the saying in Mexico, when they say, where are you from? They say, donde eres? Donde eres? It means like, who are you? Who are you from? Okay. And the answer would be, soy, soy de Chicago. I am, I am of Chicago. So they would say, soy de la Ciudad de Mexico or soy de Guadalajara, right? Do they do the same thing in Puerto Rico? Soy de, right? So, this is, so it's a different saying. And what they're actually meaning is that I am from a certain city 
where my parents were born, where I was born, where I grew up, where all of my family still lives, and I still reside. I still reside. And actually, at the time of Jesus, most people in Israel could say that. They were from a certain place. It's where their family was from. It's where they grew up. Interestingly, Jesus was not that way. In the first few years of his life, he lived in three different places. Egypt, most likely Alexandria, that's what Pastor Hal said last week, is that most likely Jesus settled in Alexandria because there was a large group of, of Jewish people living in Alexandria. Alexandria to, to Nazareth is about 600 miles. That's a tremendous journey for somebody in the, in the first century. But that's, typically, um, uh, that's not typically what other Israel boys would have had as a, as a heritage, but that's who Jesus had. Now, it was important that Jesus ended up in, in Nazareth for a couple of different reasons. Nazareth was a, was a backwater town. It was, it was a town where men were tough and so were the women. Right? Um, in, in Michigan, okay, in Michigan, we say in the Upper Peninsula, the, the saying is, is that the Upper Peninsula is where men are men and women are too. Okay, so, so it, it, it shows you kind of how tough they are, the backwoods type of thing. And Nazareth had that kind of reputation because it was so far separated. In fact, Samaria was between Galilee and Judah because it was so separated and most people lived their, their entire life. They had speech patterns that were very unique. So the disciples, as well as Jesus, when they were in Judah, they could tell they were from Galilee. They had a separate accent, okay? Even, even Nathaniel said, can anything good come from Nazareth? It had that kind of rep reputation. But you know, that's, that's really key. That's really key because it's, it's interesting to know that often the early church and the early disciples, many of them were not wealthy. Many of them were not, were not well known. They were the common people. And aren't you glad? I mean, aren't you glad that Jesus was able to do that? It was a, Nazareth was an uncelebrated forgotten town off of the beaten path like most of his followers would be. Um, Nazareth, it was, it was said, um, was, was a place where uh, if you came from it, you would not want to let people know about it. You would not want to let people know about it. But, but Jesus spoke about the rich and the poor. And this is what he said. He said, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It, can you imagine? It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And we know that in the early church, um, it was many people that were, that were slaves. They were servants. That was not the, it was the working class that, that came to Jesus. It wasn't the wealthy, the influential. And I can understand that. I've witnessed to a number of people. And it's very difficult, people that have everything, they think they have everything, but they don't have Jesus, to tell them they need to get saved. They kind of say, well, save from what? They say, I've got everything I possibly need. You see, their heart doesn't understand that they're actually poor, they're bankrupt. Um, in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul said, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. And, and this is the story of chapter 1 and 2. It's the story of Jesus and where he came from and the beginning of the, uh, be beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Now today we're going to be talking about John the Baptizer, okay? Now the scriptures call him John the Baptist, but quite frankly, it was 1,500 years before Baptist even existed. He was a baptizer. He, he was the one that, that 
brought baptism to the people of Israel uh, that told them to repent of their sins. And that's actually going to be my message today. The title of my message is John the Baptizer. We'll be reading from Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 12, 1 through 12. And we'll do this in, in sections, but you can follow along uh, on, online, I mean, uh, on the screen or in your bulletins. For the first few verses, it says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, John the Baptist is actually the last of the Old Testament prophets. Even though we see him here in the New Testament, he was actually operating under the Old Testament covenants. He was the last, uh, he was actually the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Now, John the Baptist also has a lineage. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, we find out that his parents were Zacharias and Elizabeth, and they were childless. They had no children, even though they were advanced in years. And the angel appeared to Zacharias while he was ministering in the temple. He was a, a Levite. He was a priest. And the angel said to him that Elizabeth would conceive and give birth to a son, and that son would be the forerunner that Elijah, uh, that, uh, uh, that, uh, that Isaiah had, had prophesied. So this was, his, this was his heritage. Now, the words, in those days, in those days John the Baptist came, uh, isn't indicate a specific time, but it means it's historical. It happened about the same time that Jesus is preaching, where John, uh, Matthew is telling a story, and he's saying, in the same time of Herod and Jesus, and along comes John the Baptist. You know, scholars um, like to speculate uh, how long John the Baptist had been preaching. John the Baptist and Jesus were contemporaries. In fact, they were cousins. They were the same age. However, Jesus didn't begin his ministry until he was 30 years of age. John the Baptist could have been out in the wilderness preaching for 12 to 15 years before that. It's very possible that he was a young man when he started. By the time that, he, that Jesus came along, his, he had many disciples and he had a large crowding, a large, uh, large following. And what was John the Baptist's message? It was repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you see, my message today really isn't about baptism or John. It was, it's about repentance and about the need for repentance. Now, to repent is a verb, and it's an action word. You know action words, right? To run, to swim, to climb, okay, to read. Those are action words. Well, the action uh, indicated with repentance is a little different than you possibly think. It really means to change your mind, to have a different mind. It's like, it's like you're headed one way, and all of a sudden, you realize you're going the wrong way, and you turn the different direction. That's what repentance is, is to, to change your mind. Now, many people think that repentance, and many churches teach this, is that to, be, to repent, it means that you need to be broken. You need to be, have like a, all your sins written on a chart, okay? Nail them to the cross, okay? Identify how sinful you are and repent of all those individual sins. To, but here's the thing. Repentance isn't really about feelings, it's about a change in attitude, a change in mind. We understand who Jesus is, that he's the true Messiah. It's not just something we're, we're hearing about in church. It's not something, it's not just a historical figure. You know, the Muslims believe in a, a Jesus as well. He was just a prophet, but to understand who Jesus truly is is to change your mind, and you, you understand what it is. It's, it's a change of direction. It's really not about feelings at all. Now, one of the questions that I receive often is, is repentance something necessary 
in order to be saved? Maybe you've heard that question before. And I can tell you, if you agree with me and a number of scholars that repentance is really an act of God, it's something that, that, cha that we change our mind, or change our attitude, then yes, that kind of repentance is, is required. You need to understand who Jesus is. And you didn't understand yesterday, but you understand today, which means you've changed your mind. You understand who Jesus is. If, however, you believe that repentance means that you really have to feel sorry, that you have to identify all of your sins, well, I can tell you that not only is that kind of repentance not required, but quite frankly, it's impossible. And I'll just use myself as an example. When I first came to, to Jesus, I was in my mid-20s. I had not grown up understanding who Jesus Christ fully was. And when I became a Christian, I was on fire for God. You know, I'm sorry if, I, if you were one of my relatives or one of my friends or one of my neighbors or one of my coworkers because I was pretty obnoxious about the whole thing. I mean, I wanted to tell everybody about Jesus. I mean, I didn't know this, and all of a sudden I knew who he was, and I wanted everyone to, to know it, to understand it. Um, but the, the issue is, is that I couldn't have possibly repented of all my sins because I didn't know what my, sons were, my sins were. I knew who Jesus was, and I understood that there was sin, but it took me years sometimes to find out that something that I had been doing actually was sinful. And God continues to work in my life today. God continues to remind me of things. But here's the, here's the good news, is all of those sins, even when I remember them, have already been forgiven. And when were they forgiven? Were they forgiven when I repented? No, they were forgiven on the cross. They were forgiven. All of the sins of mankind were forgiven on the cross. Our job is just to change our mind and to understand that those sins have already been covered by the blood of Jesus. That's, that's the difference. You know, now Matthew 4.17 says this. He says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is, at, is near. So you see, Jesus also, his very few first words in preaching was also to repent. But again, Jesus is not talking about a feeling. He's talking about a, a change in mind. And you see, this is, this is important. Uh, the, the people, when it says that John the Baptist was in the wilderness, it was important to him because the people knew that the Messiah was coming. And they would flock to John the Baptist to, to hear about it, to hear about who the Messiah was going to be. Let's continue. Matthew writes this. He says, for this, meaning John the Baptist, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And John himself with, clo with clothed in camel hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honeys. Now, Matthew says that this man, meaning John the Baptist, was the one that Isaiah had said would come to make the path straight, to prepare the people's hearts for the Messiah, to make it straight, a straight path. Aren't you glad sometimes when the highway is straight and it doesn't curve all over the place? You know, here in Florida, our, our roads are relatively straight, right? I mean, they really are. Unless they're going around a lake, they're, they're pretty much going straight. Our roads here in Florida go north and south and east and west, right? Sometimes diagonally, but they're, they're straight. Now, when we lived in Pittsburgh, one of the 18 places where we lived prior, when we lived in Pittsburgh, they had a saying. And the saying was this, you can't get there from here. <laughs> Isn't that funny when you think about it? You'd say, well, how do I get there? And they'd say, they would, they'd say, well, you can't get there from here. What they mean is that 
Where you want to go is only a few miles directly north, but you can't go north because there's a mountain in the way. You've got to go back down to the highway, take the beltway around, okay, around a couple miles, and then you've got to snake back over. You can't get there from here. Now, aren't you glad that what John the Baptist said is you can? You can get there. You can go straight. The path to Jesus is a straight way. There's no detours. You don't have to go back to your home church. You don't have to go and learn a lot of religious stuff. You don't have to take classes to make Jesus the Lord of your life. You don't need to do all of those things. You just need to repent. And repent means to change your mind. You see, in our, in our churches today, there's people that have heard of Jesus since they were little. They've been going to Sunday school and doing all kinds of things, but they've never changed their mind understanding that Jesus was their Messiah, that Jesus came to forgive their sins. You see, all too often, people today are not unlike the Pharisees and the Sadducees of yesteryear because the Pharisees and the Sadducees never thought that they needed to repent. They never needed to, to change their way. They thought that they had it all under control. But Jesus came to forgive their sins as well. And, and that's really our, our, the point. The straight path that John the Baptist was talking about was a pathway to your heart, to change your heart. You know, God is, is patient and he's kind. God would never allow us to take a, a step to change our mind that he would not be receptive. God is always there. You don't have to change God's mind. He already knows. He already knows that he sent Jesus. He just, you just need to, to change your mind. A scripture today says that John was clothed with camel's hair with a leather belt. I love that. John the Baptist was this, this, this person in the wilderness with this long shaggy beard and he had camel hair around him which was kind of rough and had a leather belt around him. It reminds us of Elijah. That's how Elijah was. I wonder if Elijah was from Nazareth. Like he could have been. You know, I have to check that out. But Elijah in 2 Kings, uh, he was fearless. He called Israel to repentance as well. And he wasn't afraid to go directly to the king and the queen and tell them they needed to repent. They needed to change their, 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 their ways. Now, John the Baptist may have had Elijah in mind when he started his ministry. Maybe he was patterning his ministry after Elijah. Could be. But actually, his ministry was given to him by the angel who spoke to his father. Because the angel told Zacharias, as he said, he, meaning your son, Zacharias, the son that is now conceived in Elizabeth, he will go in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So what else do we know about John the Baptist? Well, <laughs> from this passage, we know that he wasn't a vegan. Okay? You might have children or grandchildren that are vegans. Okay? Vegans don't eat locusts and wild honey. Okay? That's a no-no for them. They, they can't eat that. So let's go on. Verses 5 and 6. It says, Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all of the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. You see, there's a couple of things we can tell from these, these passages. First of all, is that John the Baptist's ministry was successful. Okay, people were coming to his services. You know, we set up all these chairs, okay, and we hope that people come, right? When we were in, in Nashville, again, we went north to Nashville. When I was pastoring in Nashville, uh, we had a church that had uh, a very small auditorium, and the church kept on growing and growing and growing. So we had five services, two on Saturday and three on Sunday. We went to six. My boss insisted that I start a fourth service on Sunday. 
So we, we changed the service times, and we started our first service at 8 o'clock in the morning. So we set everything up. I had to get in there about 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning. The band had to get in there. We had to set everything up for the service on Sunday. And set everything up, and we had about 50, 75 chairs set up, and nobody would be there. It wasn't successful. We had a, people wouldn't come at 8 o'clock, okay? We just had to find a way to put more chairs in the 10, 9.30, 10 11.30. We had to put more chairs in those services because people wouldn't come at 8 o'clock. But, but John the Baptist services were successful. People who were coming from all over, it says, um, then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the regions around the Jordan went out to him, and they were baptized by him. Now, the other thing we know about, about John the Baptist is this idea about baptism. Baptism. I said I wasn't going to talk much about baptism, but it's there. So baptism was actually known by the Jewish people for centuries. The priest would have a ritual baptism. They would, they would bathe prior to going into the sanctuary, but it was ceremonial. They weren't scrubbing the dirt off. In fact, it had nothing to do with repentance because they didn't believe they needed to repent. They were the priests, after all, okay? This was just a ritual cleansing in order to be purified for the, for the, for the temple. There was a baptism of repentance, and it was for the non-Jews that wanted to become Jewish, the people that were converting to Judaism. If, the, if they were male, they had to have, be circumcised. There was always an offering in the temple that was required, but there was a mikvah, a baptism that was required to, to repent. Uh, now, the 20th century Scottish theologian, one of my favorite people, he died about 20 years ago, John Barclay, wrote this. He said, baptism at the time of Jesus was for sinners. And no Jew ever conceived of himself as a sinner. No Jew thought of himself as shut out from God. Now, for the first time in their national history, the Jews realized their own sin and their own claim and need to God. Never before had there been such a unique national movement of penitence and of a search for God. Speaking of John the Baptist, that's what John the Baptist brought to the people. He let them understand. And, in, and oh, by the way, baptism in the early church was always full immersion, okay? I mean, God bless you that have been sprinkled, and I understand people do that to this day, but in the early church, it was always with a lot of water. If we excavate some of the old um, temple, uh, the old churches going back to the first and second century, uh, they, it was a room about this size, maybe a little bigger, and there was always a hot tub in there. Well, it wasn't a hot tub. It was a baptismal. It was enough to go completely under the water and then come out again. That was, that was the purpose of baptism, was to be fully immersed like that. Uh, in fact, it wasn't until the Baptist, 1500. 1517 after, after, after um, Martin Luther, that people started being baptized again. Let's go on. Verses 7 through 12. And when he, that's John, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Then he continues, he says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And this is our introduction, by the way, to Pharisees and Sadducees. You can read the Old Testament and they don't appear. 
The Pharisees and Sadducees were contested religious groups, both political and religious groups, uh, that came about during the time of Judas Maccabees. The Pharisees thought they were uh, very religiously pure. They were holy because they observed all the laws, plus they added about 600 other laws, and they followed those as well. And if you wanted to be right in front of God, you had to follow all of the laws as well. That's where the Pharisees, and they kind of walked around with their nose up in the air, had long robes. Now, the Sadducees were similar, except the, the Sadducees were all Levites. They were all priests. They, they, they served in the temple. They were in charge of the temple. And, and we know from the... Uh, the New Testament, that they were in contention with each other. They didn't like each other. But the one thing they had in common is they didn't like Jesus. They didn't like Jesus because he was upsetting the apple cart. Now, it's interesting. They both came out to John the Baptist. They came to John the Baptist because the Messiah was coming. And they wanted to be, they wanted to be part of the crowd. They wanted to show the people that they also were looking forward to the, to the Messiah. But John calls them out. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You know, John accused both of the groups of pretending, pretending to be ready for the Messiah, but they really weren't ready because they needed to repent. They needed to change their mind. Now, <clears throat> the wrath to come was known by the Jews and the Pharisees and Sadducees, but the Pharisees and Sadducees never thought that they needed to repent that the wrath would ever come upon them. The wrath of God was reserved for those other nations. It was reserved for the Egyptians and the Romans, and the Babylonians and the Assyrians and all the ites. And it was, it was not for the Pharisees and the Sadducees, maybe some of the Jews, but certainly not the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then John speaks about Jesus. He says, there is one, here, there is one to come whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Now, carrying sandals is a servant's job. Okay? And John's saying this, I'm not qualified to even be his servant, to be his slave. Okay? He's going to be mightier than I. You're coming to see me, but there's someone coming. And the people are excited. And remember, the people are excited because there was a rumor going around at the time of Jesus, when he started his ministry, when John the Baptist was preaching, that there were shepherds in the field. And an angel appeared to them outside of Bethlehem and told them that the Messiah had been born in the city of David. And they ran to see him, and they actually found a babe laying in a crib. They found that, okay? That was just a rumor. It had happened about 30 years before, but the people had heard this rumor. They knew that the Messiah was coming, and they were looking for the Messiah. Now, John says that this Messiah, this person that was coming, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire his winnowing fan in his hand. Now, for those of you that remember your Sunday school, a winnowing fan, okay, it's something we don't understand, but a winnowing fan is like a, it's like, a, it's like a piece of cloth that has holes in it, and you would put grain on there, and you would shake it, and you kind of throw it up into the wind, and the wind would catch the, shaft, the, the, the chaff and blow it away. But the grain would come back down so that finally you'd have good grain and not the worthless chaff. The good grain was put into the bucket, but the chaff, what happened to it? It was burned up with fire. And that's what John the Baptist is saying, that he's, this Jesus, this Messiah that's coming, is going to be a, a winnowing fan. He's going to be able to tell the difference between those whose hearts are right and those whose hearts are not. Remember I said in church, you've been going to church for a long time. We have people go to church, but they've never repented. They've never changed their mind. They've never understood that Jesus died on the cross for their sin as well. And Jesus knows, the, knows our hearts. We can dress the part, 
We can pretend, but Jesus knows the pretenders from the real thing. He's going to be the winnowing fan. Now, this comment by John the Baptist of, of the baptism by fire, scholars, both secular as well as Christian, understand this is the first time in history that that, that, that phrase was used. Now, we all know what a baptism by fire is, right? The, the seculars know what it is. It's, it's like... It's like when John Kennedy, John Kennedy became president as, at an early age. He was, he was still a young man, right? And Khrushchev decides to test him, okay? So all of a sudden you have this Cuban Missile Crisis. You have this very powerful country and you have missiles in Cuba. He's being, this is a baptism by fire. You know, it could be, it could be a 911 operator who the first time on the job, instead of just answering calls about a cat in a tree, right? Or somebody that fell down that needs an ambulance, all of a sudden there's a major disaster. And the 911 operator has this baptism by fire, okay? And, and has to be able to perform, even though they're, they're brand new in the job. Now, theologically, there's a little bit of a debate because many theologians believe that this, this baptism by fire that John references uh, is the day of Pentecost. Remember the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, it says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. Not really fire, but as of fire. And one sat on each of them. And many people believe, well, that's, that's Jesus came, and that's the baptism by fire. But it's context. And I'm a context king. I mean, I just love reading the scriptures and finding out what the context is. And the context here is not Pentecost. The context here is judgment. Jesus says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And then he says, he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So John the Baptist, the context here is, is judgment. The Bible tells us that Jesus will come as a flaming fire to judge those who do not know God. In 2 Thessalonians, it says, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the end time, second coming of Jesus Christ. He comes as a winnowing fan. He comes with fire to judge those that either know God or do not know God. But I like closing with good news. And the good news is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You know, God wanted to make our path straight. And God gave us Jesus. Our opportunity is to change our mind and understand that Jesus, this Jesus and this verse actually summarizes God's plan for us. God's plan for us is that we would live forever with him, that we would be children of God, that regardless of our sin and our sinful nature, that all of our sins could be forgiven by understanding who Jesus is. The, the scriptures teaches us, and I saw this on a plaque once, it says, God gave, Jesus died. God gave, God gave Jesus to us, and Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That summarizes this straight path to God. It, it's that easy. It's that easy of understanding who Jesus is and why we need to understand who Jesus is and accept him as our Savior as well. See, the Pharisees and the Sadducees blew him off. They didn't think they needed him because they thought that they could make it on their own. But they were so wrong. They were so wrong. Jesus is the way. 
Everyone who trusts in him will be saved from any condemnation. Jesus doesn't come as a fire for those that are, have accepted Jesus. We who believe have no fear of any fiery judgment. We know that we are loved by God, and we, now we call ourselves children of God. Amen? Amen. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you, Lord. You've been listening to Faith Dialogue with Pastor Ken Baer, recorded live at Celebrate Seniors a ministry of faith dialogue. You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www.faithdialogue.org.